Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Fannie, Freddie, AIG, and the scandal that you may not have heard of. So, okay, Richard, this is we've got a complex and, and somewhat technical issue today, but it's an important one just because of how sweeping uh, what the government has done here is. And it involves uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We should be clear too up front that this is a case that you have worked on in a legal capacity. So these are two institutions that uh, people seem sort of dimly aware of before the financial crisis, maybe a little bit more so afterwards, but they're still somewhat opaque to a lot of people. So let's just kind of start with the basics. What's the the background with Fannie and Freddie? Give us kind of the layperson's explanation of what their role has been historically and then how they got into so much trouble with the financial crisis. Well, the, historically what happens is Fannie, is Fannie Mae is created first and Freddie is created later. Fannie is created around in the late 1930s and I think Freddie in the 1960s, but those details really don't matter. For these purposes, they're basically the same and they're basically the government's effort to create what they call a government-sponsored enterprise, GSE, which means they're part government and part foul, and therein lies the difficulty because you never quite know how to treat them. And early on, what happens is the agency is used, designed to intermediate with respect to mortgages, which means if a private party decides to issue a mortgage, Fannie and Freddie may guarantee some of these things. Or in effect, when these things are sold into the secondary market, uh, these organizations may end up buying them. So what they do is they had a lot of mortgages on their books. And people have always been upset about their preferential position uh, because it's been generally understood that if something happens to their balance sheet, the federal government will bail them out, which means that they can borrow their own monies in order to finance its own, their own activities at a lower rate than everybody else. But by virtue of the fact that they are a GSE, it turns out it comes with special obligations. And so there have been community redevelopment acts in 1992 and then about 15 years later in which they're required to make loans to minority high-risk buyers and to pretend that they're not high-risk borrowers. And what they say in effect is you have to have a certain set aside for these groups, but you can't lower your underwriting standard. And you realize as you go deeper into the pool, you're always lowering your underwriting standard. In addition to all of this, the whole system that takes place in Fannie and Freddie is subject to fluctuations in the general economy. And since they have such a huge concentration of commercial paper, uh, when things start to go south as they did in 2007 and 2008, <coughs> they have no diversification against this sort of structural risk. And so by the time you got to uh, the summer and then the fall of 2008, it was quite clear that after Bear Stearns went down that there was going to be some kind of risk going on. In the summer of 2008, the government passes a statute known as HERA, the Housing Economic Recovery Act, which creates something called FHFA, the Federal Housing <coughs> Financial Agency. Um, and these things, the first one tells you what you're supposed to do if something goes wrong, and then the second one is the administrator to do it. When the at the teeth of the of the situation in September, uh, what Henry Paulson does is he forces the private boards of Fannie and Freddie to resign. He puts in essentially the head man named Ed DeMarco from FHFA, and what they do is they schedule a bailout, which essentially says we're going to lend you. Not lend you. We're going to be, buy a preferred stock with a 10 percent 
dividend, uh, which will take priority over everything else, and we're going to freeze all other distributions. And then what we will do is we will give you $185 billion to take you and get you out of it. And that was the deal that they did there. And it turns out just a couple of weeks later, they do a very similar deal with um, AIG with a higher interest coupon. Um, and also some kind of a bailout. And in the end of it, the government basically took 80% of the common stock of both parties. The AIG thing has gone to litigation where they kept the original deal, but the Fannie and Freddie Mae thing um, was modified in 2012 by the Third Amendment. But that involved essentially the government changing the deal and deciding that all future dividends coming out of the Fannie and Freddie recovery shall go to the government so that the shareholders would get nothing when the day was over. Okay, so Richard, the the government makes this change to the the deal with uh, Fannie and Freddie. Explain how this played out relative to the AIG thing, because I, I know that you think that there's, there's sort of an instructive parallel here in, in how these two cases were handled. Yeah, well, AIG is essentially gone now to a full trial, but this is a, the uh, second stage of some very complicated litigation. There was a previous lawsuit in the Second Circuit, that's the appellate court and the district court for New York, in which uh, the AIG people lost. And essentially the position, which I think was correct, that the judges took at both levels, is look, you guys were in really bad shape under these circumstances. You had all of these um, obligations to pay people money if the value of their mortgage portfolios went down. And uh, you could not possibly raise the money to do it. The government gives you the money. They bargain very hard and they're saying we're going to take 80% of the common shares of this company. You get nothing if you turn this down. You get $85 billion and the possibility of a 20% retention if the thing is managed to stabilize itself. And if that's the situation, when it stabilizes itself, you can't come back and say no, no, no. Uh, so what happens is there are two possibilities. One is that AIG can sue and claim that this entire bailout arrangement was corrupt and they decided after their board met that they would not protest the thing with AIG. But a company named Star International run by a man named Hank Greenberg essentially said that this was an oppressive bailout. And what the court said on this, which I think was correct, look, this was a desperate situation. You had no other alternatives. You had your own board making the kind of decision that was in place. You took the deal. You live with the deal. And remember, if you didn't get this deal, you would get nothing at all. So the thought that somehow or other the deal has to be restructured in some way that would give you more money, I think uh, Greenberg's asking for something over $30 billion, is in fact a mistake. Uh, the case has gone to trial. There's been testimony by key government officials, Geithner, Paulson, and Ben Bernanke. And, you know, David Boyce is a splendid lawyer, but I don't think he made a dent in them when they said, look, we were really worried about the well-being of the overall financial system. We had to intervene through AIG in order to make sure it'd be stabilized. But if we, in fact, did this in ways that had other companies benefit, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing uh, that takes place. And besides, the shareholders actually came out fairly well because when this thing was refloated, they were able to pay back the loan with the interest and they still have a viable uh, private company. This is the way in which it turns out that bailouts ought to work. So um, I've been consistently on the government side with respect to this issue, and I do think that they will prevail at this trial. In fact, the striking thing about the cases thus far, none of the issues that have been discussed have been any different from the ones that were discussed in the Second Circuit, where you had a slightly different litigation posture. So that's AIG. Walk us through <laughs> Fannie and Freddie. Where does that case stand now? What are the possible recourses 
potential outcomes. Well, Fannie and Freddie, as I said, was a different kind of agency and has had a very different kind of history. Uh, the first thing that happens is that Paulson, who was very upset about the situation, decides to sack the board that operated Fannie and Freddie, the independent boards, and put his own people in charge. So you don't have the same kind of arm's length negotiation in 2008 uh, that you had with respect to AIG. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is everybody said that it was a bailout and that the companies were insolvent, but the short-term information suggests maybe this isn't so clear because after this bailout took place on the terms that were forced down the companies, uh, the value of the preferred stock owned by private individuals, the so-called junior preferred now, actually plummeted. This had a lot to do with the large banking project because preferred stock from Fannie Mae was thought to be so wonderful that banks used it for their reserve capital in order to meet their capital requirements. And now this plummeted and it created collateral consequences elsewhere in the lending market. So there's one suit which is attacking this kind of an arrangement on the grounds that there's no real quid pro quo that's going on in this case. It's brought by a company called Washington Federal. Most people think it's going to be a very tough case to win, but nobody thinks that it's an absolutely impossible case to win. Uh, but the real hackles on this, and I think this is correct, are in on August 17th in 2012, Mr. DeMarco and Mr. Geithner signed an amendment to their original agreement which restructures the deal. It turns out that under the circumstances of this arrangement, uh, the companies are no longer obliged to pay the 10% dividend on the preferred stock or roughly speaking $18 billion a year. But in exchange for being released from $18 billion a year, they have to pay everything that comes in at all future times no matter what the future state of affairs so that the companies are essentially rendered broke. And the argument that's made is, A, this was utterly inconsistent with the legal arrangements that had been put into place in 2008. It was a concern conservatorship and you can't liquidate it in a conservatorship. Uh, it turns out that the conservator, that is Fannie FHFA, has fiduciary duties to the junior shareholders and when it gives away all their money and gets back nothing in return except for a release so that they don't have to pay money which they couldn't pay anyhow, this is not a fair arm's length transaction. So the whole thing ought to be set aside. It's both a breach of fiduciary duty and it is also a taking of the property in question. You leave them with the shares, but the dividend rights are gone, the liquidation rights are gone, and the control rights are gone, so it's just an empty hulk. Uh, last week uh, or so, I think it was September 30th, there's a man named Royce Lambert, who's a well-known judge in the District of Columbia, and he said the challenges that were being made to this takeover were completely misguided, and he dismissed the case without the benefit of discovery without the benefit of a trial. He said, look, uh, the arrangement on which FHFA worked gave them the rights of the shareholders, which meant they could do whatever they want with the shares. They don't have standing. And besides, there's no taking under these particular circumstances because it's a mere financial regulation that is put into place. And I've written some fairly caustic statements saying that he's wrong on the law, wrong on the facts, indeed wrong on everything. Uh, and I really do believe that that is in fact the case. Richard, for the listener who's not deeply involved in this world, uh, make the case to them as to why this matters. If you're just an average American, how does this have the potential to affect you? Well, first of all, uh, there are two ways. One, many of the people who are owners of the junior preferred and the common stock of Fannie and Freddie are ordinary people who invested in this stock long before the 2008 debacle and they've been cut out from dividends and now they're told that the companies having recovered they will get nothing because to make it clear what the stakes are, uh, the actual arrangement 
uh, that we have in this case call for a payments of $18 billion a year um, by within 10 months after the bailout took place in June 30th, the government had already gotten back $100 billion above and beyond that which it was owed. So there's a lot of people who believe that the government knew exactly what was happening, that the companies had returned to profitability. Uh, there was stuff stated by Gretchen Morgenstern that the man named Jeffrey Goldstein inside Treasury had told them, look, uh, the only way we can make sure that the shareholders don't get anything and all goes to the taxpayer is to rig this um, phony agreement with our friend uh, Mr. DeMarco over at FH and so there is a lot of worry about this stuff because of past irregularities and hurting a lot of innocent shareholders. It's also uh, Fannie Mae stock, Freddie Mac stock is owned in many, in large part by universities, churches, endowments, and so forth. And this is a huge hit that they have to take, and it seems to be illegitimate. And the second major concern is if the government can pull this kind of a stunt here, put its own trustee in and have him sell out on all the fair value in violation of the statute, which in fact it was, uh, then in effect nobody will ever enter the private lending market again for residential real estate because what happened in this particular time could happen any other time in any other way. And so uh, what one's worried about is that this is a big version of the irregularities that took place with the Chrysler and GM bankruptcies where all the standard rules on priorities were completely reversed by government strategies and then they were validated by the courts. And the capital markets will not have confidence in any private arrangement if contractual priorities are not observed. And so the way in which people in the industry look at it is they didn't read Judge Lambert's opinion and say, gee, my God, I never understood just how right he was. They read it in utter disbelief that he can say this. And, you know, he misread the statute in many places. He omitted various kinds of provisions. He gave very strained interpretation as to some of the financial arrangements in there. And then at the end of this thing, he says, well, it's just the plain meaning that requires this kind of result when it did anything but. So there is in the general institutional investor hedge fund um, kind of community a certain amount of sort of genuine dismay about both the short-term result and the long-term processes because they have no confidence now in either the judicial system or in the government in the way in which things are done. Uh, the case is now on appeal and that may change it. There's also a parallel lawsuit in the circuit Court of Claims, which is uh, a different court, which are bought by Perry and Fairholme, the two major companies here, which is in discovery on all of these issues. And so lots of people are saying maybe this other case will come out the other way and the issue may get up to the Supreme Court. Uh, a district court decision is a very important thing, but it is not the final word on this. And given the weakness of the arguments that were presented in the case called Perry Capital against Lou, the Secretary of the Treasury, um, it seems to me that we have more to go on it. But it's striking as to how different the historical profiles are between this case and AIG and it would be a mistake to lump them together on the grounds that both were bailouts and both were very large government transactions. Final question from a classical liberal perspective. When you look at the sort of government involvement in the housing market that we've had for so many decades and then you combine that with sort of the practical politics of knowing that you're probably not going to move mountains overnight. Um, how would you prefer to see that change in the future? What, what's the sort of the optimal response for 
uh, recalibrating the government's involvement with the, well, the housing you, market. First of all, you don't want to have either of the two things that led to the problem. You don't want to have these mixed entities where you don't know whether they're fish or fowl. You don't want, in effect, to have the government giving a subsidy which you can't quantify because it's in the form of a guarantee. And you don't want to have the government imposing obligations to take certain kinds of paper which you can't quantify because it's in the form of an incohate obligation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to be able to really straighten out the general credit markets and the easy money policies that got you into difficulty in 2006 are underappreciated as a source of the difficulty because to get the money, people bid up the value of the assets and then when they bid up the value of the assets, there was no greater um, fool out there to take it from them and the whole thing collapses, bust, booms also doing. You want to avoid that. And then you have to buy, try to figure out how it is that you run a rational private market without a last guarantee from the government, which becomes overwhelming. And every time they've tried to do this, it has failed. There have been a bunch of statutes that have been proposed. They're all dead in the water. And the basic rule that most people think, and I think this is true, is that nobody in the industry will contribute to raise the capital that you need to fund a $10 trillion market if they think another Third Amendment can come along and wipe out with the stroke of a pen uh, the entire equity positions that people have built up. The exact amount that's being taken can't be said. We know that based basically 130 or $140 billion in excess payments have already been made under this. But we don't know when if these are treated as a return of capital so that you put the original deal back in place, how much the shares are still work. Everybody who invests has to take that market risk. What they can tolerate is the government risk. And the lesson that you want to learn is if you have active government manipulation in, in fact, credit markets, they will essentially collapse by virtue of the fact that nobody will have confidence in the fact that the commercial paper that they bought is the commercial paper that they'll be able to keep. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.